Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Dr. Sanduk Ruit. He is an ophthalmologist, an eye surgeon, and the founder and executive director of the Tilganga Institute of Ophthalmology. The institute is in Kathmandu, Nepal. Dr. Ruit has restored the eyesight of more than 130,000 people in Asia and Africa. He's the pioneer of a small incision form of cataract surgery. And not only was that a medical triumph, but he's found a way to make the treatment accessible to many very poor people in Nepal, his home country, and beyond. His institute has developed a way to manufacture its own intraocular lenses to insert in the eyes of patients with the same quality of Western suppliers and at a tiny fraction of the cost. Dr. Ruit comes from a very poor and remote region of Eastern Nepal. He's an inspiration in his home country, has won more than 40 awards from governments and other institutions around the world. There's a book about him called The Barefoot Surgeon. I was fortunate to meet Dr. Ruit in Nepal this past spring. I was there with my team of 18 biotech executives for a trek to Everest Base Camp, in which we together raised $1.3 million for research at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center. While in Kathmandu, one of the trekkers, Jeff Huber, the former CEO of Grail, introduced me to Dr. Ruit and his amazing story. Jeff and I invited him to speak to our broader group. I'm glad we did, because Dr. Ruit's work shows what a difference a talented and driven scientific entrepreneur can make. We were thinking a lot on this trip about how to make an impact for people in need, and Dr. Ruit really shows the way. When he and his trainees do these eye surgeries, they are giving people their lives back and relieving a major burden from whole families. Now before we get started, a word from the sponsor of The Long Run. Calgary is home to more than 120 life sciences companies, from emerging startups to established firms. With this critical mass of research, technical talent, and expertise, the city is an active hub for life sciences innovation. Technologies homegrown in Calgary are changing the face of healthcare. Cyantra is revolutionizing breast cancer detection using artificial intelligence-derived algorithms. Nanotest is harnessing the power of nanotechnology to tackle chronic wounds and skin conditions. And this is only the beginning. Calgary's life sciences sector is projected to spend $428 million on digital transformation by 2024. If you're a bright mind or a bright company solving global health challenges, Calgary is the place for you. Take a closer look at why at calgarylifesciences.com. Now, please join me and Dr. Sanduk Ruit on the long run. Dr. Sanduk Ruit, welcome to the long run. Thank you very much for having me uh, in your program, uh, Luke. Great. So um, I I like to start these shows, Dr. Ruit, with a, a little bit of background on the person. Um, so can you start us off with uh, where did you grow up? Look, I, I was um, born uh, in 1954. Really, uh, if you, I don't know if you're familiar with the map of Nepal, which is like a rectangle. And right at the eastern corner, eastern northern corner, at the base of Mount Kanchenjunga, which is the third highest mountain, uh, I grew up uh, in a very, very, very small village, and which was uh, even now, but then it was almost very, sequestrated from the whole country, from the world, uh, and uh, at, a, at an altitude of about 10,000 feet, and a small village, no schools, nothing, just a monastery there to depend on everything, you know? So that's where I, uh, I sort of spent my first seven years of my life, a little more than seven years of my life. Wow, so what did your parents do to uh, support the family? Yeah. My father was a bar trader uh, between Tibet and Nepal. And once in a while, he traveled down to some parts of India to collect a few things to be sold in Tibet. 
And uh, often they used to bring things from Tibet, including salt. And uh, then he used to take grains and paints. I believe those days they, they didn't have any paint. They needed a lot of paints for painting tankas and other things. So they used to take paints, which were made in India from Calcutta. Uh, and uh, so he was basically a bar trader between uh, Tibet and Nepal. Mm -hmm. Did you used to tag along and, and help? I, I never, uh, I don't remember very well, but uh, I do remember the fact that I used to tag on with him to the monastery and uh, some of the places around the village, but not very far away. Mm -hmm. So what happened when you uh, turned seven? When I turned seven, there were no formal uh, schools there in the village. And uh, uh, basically, uh, if you, you know, if I remember the village, uh, it's almost uh, like uh, what uh, uh, I would guess England used to be about, uh, you know, 1500 years ago, something, something like that, you know, similar kind of uh, situation. But uh, anyway, my father uh, himself spending a little time you know, as a monk would in the monastery, uh, I think he valued education. So he wanted to, uh, you know, uh, despite all challenges, he wanted to uh, put me in a school. And uh, the nearest place uh, that we could think of going to school was uh, a place in northeastern India called Darjeeling, where you get uh, very nice tea, you know. So uh, my father actually uh, decided to take me to school there. Uh, and uh, that was, uh, you know, uh, actually walking on the eastern edge of the Nepalese uh, rectangle map right from the top to the base. And it took me nearly, I remember nearly for us to travel, nearly 15 days to travel to the, to the place where we could get a small truck to hop on uh, and take about two hours of uh, you know rough journey in a small old truck and go to school there. Luke, was this a uh, boarding school? It it was uh, it was a boarding school. The name of the school is Saint Robert's School, and uh, this was one school that uh, my dad could afford. It wasn't a very expensive school, and uh, but he put me uh, in the school there and. Uh, uh, I, I mean, it was, uh, you know, if, if I remember, I've, uh, you know, very often I've said about it, but uh, uh, a lot of things were a bit of cultural shock for me at that time, including the, the clothes that, uh, you know, they were wearing, all the surroundings, electricity, the sound of the car, and uh, the books and everything were, you know, very, very new to me. Mm -hmm. And how did how long did you stay there? Did you go all the way through primary school? I stayed till uh, class eight uh, in nineteen. Uh, I believe it was in nineteen sixty one, sixty two, when uh, the war between India and China, uh, you know, forced all the schools to close down. And uh, yeah, that war was uh, you know went on and. Uh, uh, so we were advised uh, to get back to home and the schools closed, uh, signed I, you know. And uh, my father then took me, uh, he, I mean, he, he was very committed and he took me all the way from there to the capital of Nepal, Kathmandu, to finish my, uh, uh, my school and uh, send me to college there. Oh, so um, what was that school like in Kathmandu? Uh, it, it's a very simple, again, it's, it's a very simple school. Uh, it's, uh, you know, in, in uh, very close to the Monkey Temple. Uh, I, I don't know whether, you know, people who have been to Nepal will remember Monkey Temple. But uh, I, I have been there. <laughs> you have done that. Yeah, there were, you know, those days uh, I'm talking about, in, you know, early 60s and mid 60s. In those days, the construction was, uh, it was almost like, a, you know, um, huts and roads and uh, we had to uh, most of the places we had to walk uh, and it was not like today you know so this was close to the monkey temple and it was a very simple school and uh, we had a boarding facility and uh, you know about 10 students used to cramp up in one room 
and uh, uh, go to school. And I finished my school from there. How did you decide that you wanted to become a doctor? You know, uh, uh, towards uh, the beginning of my college life, uh, my dad brought my younger sister to Kathmandu. And, uh, my younger sister was about two years younger than me. And, uh, she went to school in, uh, in, uh, in uh, she went to school in Kathmandu, and I was going to college. And uh, uh, we hired a small room, uh, you know, in a very simple place. And uh, that was a room where we had a uh, we had a bedroom, study room, and kitchen in the same room, and uh, went to a common bathroom. So anyway, uh, you know, I was very close to my sister, my younger sister, and uh, uh, she used to cook for us. Uh, for two hours, and uh, I used to go and do a bit of shopping, and uh, good for 15 days, and then uh, you know once in a while, in about three or four months, we used to go and uh, you know watch a movie, and uh, uh, but you know she she had a wonderful voice and she used to sing sometimes, and uh, she always said that uh, she always uh, very strongly she said uh, that I should study very hard and rich uh, uh, and do something very, very good, uh, you know, be, a, uh, be a very successful in the future. Anyway, over the period of time, uh, she started uh, losing weight and uh, uh, we went on to check her and she was coughing and, uh, you know, so she, she had a uh, very bad pulmonary lung tuberculosis and uh, she was put on treatment, very ordinary uh, primary line of treatment. You know, those days, I don't know whether any of you remember, but uh, it was used to call streptomycin and uh, INH. And these were uh, available with difficulty. So she was put on those and she started responding in the beginning. But later on, uh, after about four or five months, uh, she started getting worse. And, uh, uh, we were asked her to uh, be sent to a sanatorium, you know. And, uh, those days, tuberculosis was also uh, put on like, uh, you know, like a, like what we put COVID patients now, you know, it's sort of isolated in sanatoriums. And uh, so anyway, she was isolated. And, uh, and uh, then the doctor said uh, that the disease is spreading out and we have no treatment. And the second line of treatment was uh, so expensive, we couldn't afford it. Anyway, she, she then uh, went back to where my dad and mom was uh, in the in the hills up in uh, eastern part of Nepal, and uh, started looking after the store that my my father had, uh, uh, you know, started a small cloth store, and uh, for uh, for the living of the family and thus sustaining us. And she started getting worse and worse, and uh, she finally succumbed uh, to tuberculosis. And uh, uh, for me, uh, it was very, uh, very difficult moment for somebody who was so close to me, find her, uh, uh, you know, sort of going through that phase. How old were you when this, when this happened? Uh, I think I was about 15, 15, 16. Yeah. And then that's when, that's when I sort of decided in my heart that the last time she, I left her in the, in the house in our village, uh, she said, uh, she was very thin and she said, I'm not going to see you again, but make sure uh, that you become something in the society, somebody in the society. And those, uh, that voice really sort of resonates and resonates uh, you know, uh, very strongly in my ear. And, uh, even now I can feel that uh, you know, voice, the power of the voice. And when wow. she passed away, when she passed away, uh, then I decided that maybe I should become somebody who can take care of people like my sister who was sick. You know, maybe medicine is the course of my future. That's when I decided to become a doctor. Luke, do you think she she saw something in you that some aptitude for schoolwork or um, humanity or something else that made made her say that? I think uh, you know she felt that I was uh, uh, I was doing my I was doing very well in my studies, and uh, she felt that uh, I had 
an attitude of care and uh, uh, and uh, intelligence that I could uh, take. Uh, I mean, you know, medicine was something that we had to really look up in the sky. You know, we couldn't think about being a doctor from that village. So she she always thought that <clears throat> maybe your intelligence and your care for people uh, probably you know uh, uh, would. Uh, she always said that uh, you know you should take something uh, like um, a medicine uh, that could really help a lot of people like me, and uh, especially in Nepal. Yeah. Well, it is true that a lot of people um, do need someone who um, <laughs> can see possibilities for them that maybe you know the person themselves can't can't always imagine. Um, okay, so let's move ahead a little bit. Now, you um, you decide to. Sp- specialize as doctors do at some point uh in ophthalmology what drew you to that specialty you know look after i came back uh, studying medicine i started working in a general hospital in nepal a large general hospital and uh, in the course of my uh, posting i was posted posted in different specialty as the junior most faculty called medical officer it's almost like a resident you know and uh and then in the course of the posting, I got posted to actually one of the ophthalmologists sort of, uh, you know, uh, I don't know what he saw in me, but uh, he said, uh, he talked to the superintendent of the, the director of the hospital and he said, you've got to post uh, this fellow to ophthalmology. So he pulled me actually to the department of ophthalmology where there were three of, three, three of them working. And, uh, uh, you know, <clears throat> I got uh, posted uh, to as a medical officer to work in ophthalmology. And uh, uh, that's that's where I started getting into the, the field of eye diseases. And, uh, and one time uh, I accompanied one of my seniors to the east, western part of Nepal, really uh, towards the west uh, in a place called Bardia which is far west, not east, but west, you know. And uh, uh, there we did a, you know, the doctor uh, did a surgical camp and uh, operated nearly 200 patients. And what really hit me was that uh, four children of the same family afflicted with congenital cataract being operated in a same day and patches off the next day and uh, I started thinking that evening after I came back to my room, this is a branch where you can bring difference of difference in the life of people, many people at such a short time. So when you say patches off the next day, I mean, these were kids that had surgery to correct. Uh, I mean, they were, they were either blind or going blind. They were all blind. And within a day, they could have their sight restored by this surgery. Yes, they could. They could have their sights uh, restored. Uh, you know, much better than what they were seeing. They're almost blind. You know, total cataract, and uh, just in a matter of a day, uh, things were happening in front of my eyes, and I thought, uh, this is it. You know. Now, was there an innovation in the surgery itself that made that possible? Was there a, a different kind of technique being used? This was a different kind of technique, and this was just remove the cataract and give very thick glasses. You know, this was the old type of cataract, and uh, you remove uh, once you know what happens with cataract is you remove uh, cataract. Uh, that's what used to be done at the old age, old time. You know, it's if you remove the cataract, the opacity gets off, but the lens has a, you know, has a inherent uh, function to focus objects, and everybody has certain power, uh, you know. Look, and uh, if you just remove the lens, uh, you can just see figures and count your fingers, but you cannot actually see things focused. And uh, that was the way surgery was conducted those days. However, it was a little different from being blind, okay? But you couldn't actually, you know, you could just count fingers at close, uh, hand motions, 
but you couldn't make the face of any person in front of you. So you, you would never be able to, for, for having, for to do that, you needed to correct your, your focusing lens, which has been damaged by an artificial lens to focus that, okay? Those, those provisions were not available in any parts of the world in this side of the, you know, it was available uh, even in the West, I would say <clears throat> it was available in few places. It wasn't rampantly available there. So when you were getting started, when you when you saw you still saw that um, the surgery could make a big difference, but there was also a lot of room for improvement. Yeah, yeah. So what you know, Luke? What uh, really um, I I got uh, extremely uh, passionate about uh, surgery of cataract and. Uh, and you know, especially after I came back, I specialized as an ophthalmologist, and I always used to. You know, one of the one things that really tricked me was, really, you know, sort of uh, sparked me in my uh, feeling was when I was, uh, I went to see one of my friends working in the casualty, in the big hospital, and uh, we used to have you know sort of breaks and. Uh, uh, you just go and see your friends casually, you know. And my friend was on duty in the casualty, and we were having a cup of tea. And uh, he just said, uh, "Will you go and see a lady who's come uh, with a fall?" And uh, I, I said, "No, you don't ask an eye doctor to go and see a, a patient with a, you know." And said, "So he, we went together and saw this lady, and, uh, you know, and examined. And uh, what uh, had happened was <clears throat> she was from up." In Rasua, which is on the Langtang side, you know, Langtang, Langtang trick side. And uh, <clears throat> what she had done, she had a surgery of cataract about six months ago. And after cataract surgery, at those days, you were given very thick glasses, almost like a cock bottle glasses. And with the glasses on, you can see certain images, you can get some focus. But I mean, it's difficult to you know, sort of be mobile. It's difficult because there's tremendous in coordination and magnification. And uh, maybe if you're sitting in one place and looking at things, it's okay. But for a lady coming from Raswa, where for daily activities, you need to have a fantastic vision. You have to cruise down, you know, Luke, you know, you have to cruise down and up and, you know, everything, you see. So she start, she, she put her glasses on, she went down, and because of that, she fell down. So she had fallen down because she was wearing a thick glass. This is going up and down the trails. Yes, going up and down down the trails. And uh, mm -hmm. then she, that, that had caused a fracture neck of femur, you know. So I, I started thinking, um, you know, you know uh, I think, what can we do to see we can give the excellent you know, modern cataract surgery and bring it to this part of the world. So that was uh, that was a thing uh, that I started uh, really, you know, uh, having a jill for and having a focus on. You know, what, how, and can I bring the state of the art modern cataract surgery that was being done in industrialized countries at that time? to this part of the world, now the, especially in Nepal and many other parts, yeah. So you went to Australia in the 80s, is that right? Y yes, um, uh, look, I know in, in 87, uh, I went to Australia for a year, but uh, I had started looking at the barriers for providing this kind of surgery in a in a place like Nepal, what were the barriers, you know? And uh, so, you know, I started, you know, really looking into the, uh, going into the depths of the issue. And one of the biggest barrier was a simple, affordable uh, surgical technique that could be conducted in this part of the world, different from what you do in, uh, you know, in, uh, in the industrialized countries which could be much simple and uh, applicable in this part of the world, yet will not compromise on the quality. 
So that was one. And second was the availability of the intraocular lens, affordable, but still of good quality, that could become part and partial of the modern cataract surgery. And the cost of these intraocular lenses were just unthinkably very high. Now, the intraocular lens, that, that's important. Was that the key piece that enabled the, the more quality vision and, and without the Coke bottle glasses afterwards? It's, it certainly was one of the most important things that happened in ophthalmology, uh, you know, in, uh, in, in, in the development of ophthalmology to transform uh, the cataract surgery to become uh, much, uh, to be much better quality. So the surgeon inserts this intraocular lens uh, and, and it's a, a minimally invasive procedure. There's not a lot of cutting, is that right? No, 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 it's, it's, it's very minimally, uh, you know, uh, especially now, uh, it's minimally invasive and it's uh, more or less, uh, you know, predictable that the patient's going to see very well. And uh, uh, it's, uh, we, have, we have been able to, we'll talk about it, but we'll be able to make it affordable and, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, and it's, 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 a, it's a thing that we have um, uh, made it available to people now. That's the most, the barriers, you know, the barriers for the surgery have been broken one, two, three, you know. All right, well, we'll get there in a second, but I wanna come back to the scope of the need that you saw. I mean, you mentioned that you knew people in villages, both older people and younger people who needed um, surgery for their cataracts. But how many people are we really talking about in a country like Nepal with, with about 30 million people? I would say that about half a million people would need cataract surgery, would need cataract surgery at any time in Nepal. And uh, then uh, every time, uh, you know, because of the uh, population, uh, as the population ages, then you are bound to see, of this, you are bound to see 10% every year, new cases, you know, yeah. So it's a lot of people. And when a person gets by with impaired vision, they tend to need um, a caretaker, somebody in the family um, who, who's helping them. Look, it's interesting uh, because uh, in, uh, especially in a place like Nepal, and there are many places in the world like Nepal where uh, it's, you know, you have a joint family and a subsistence family where everybody uh, has to, uh, you know, do something uh, to be responsible, uh, to be useful to the uh, family orchestra, you know. And, uh, somebody is in the field somebody is in the you know with the kitchen uh, somebody is in the woods and uh, if somebody gets knocked out with uh, blindness and uh, then uh, you know there has to be that person's responsibility has to be given to another person but then the other person will have extra responsibility to, to look after this person so the whole rhythm of the family uh, gets disturbed and uh, you know economically and socially uh, uh, you know, they could be, the effect is cumulative, really. Calgary is home to more than 120 life sciences companies, from emerging startups to established firms. With this critical mass of research, technical talent, and expertise, the city is an active hub for life sciences innovation. Technologies homegrown in Calgary are changing the face of healthcare. Cyantra is revolutionizing breast cancer detection using artificial intelligence-derived algorithms. Nanotest is harnessing the power of nanotechnology to tackle chronic wounds and skin conditions. And this is only the beginning. Calgary's life sciences sector is projected to spend $428 million on digital transformation by 2024. If you're a bright mind or a bright company solving global health challenges, Calgary is the place for you. Take a closer look at why at calgarylifesciences.com. And if you like listening to The Long Run, check out my writing at timmermanreport.com. You can subscribe for a month, a quarter, or a year at a time to get my weekly front points column, coverage of emerging startups, and a wide range of original contributing writers who bring perspective on relevant issues to biotech executives and investors. Group discounts are available. 
go to TimmermanReport.com and hit subscribe. And so here you saw something that's a, a pretty significant medical need in your country. It has ripple effects through families. And you've, you've got the training here to do something about it. And you can get results very quickly and, and pretty dramatically. This sounds pretty exciting. Yeah. Look, you know, I'd like to mention at this time uh, a report of a, a countrywide survey that was done in Nepal uh, just about this time, a little before this, to look at the prevalence and the distribution of blindness. And it was found that, uh, you know, cataract surgery is done at that time. It was found that about 5% of the total blindness was because of bad cataract surgery, you know? And of the operated cataract patients, it was found that 60 to 70% were not wearing glasses and they were thereby functionally blind. So definitely it uh, pointed towards a, uh, towards a fact that you need to re-engineer the whole system, you know? So uh, th these were very important data, you know? very important data that uh, we wanted to uh, sort of come forwards. And, uh, you know, this was the time when you know, surgery was being done without microscopes and, uh, and it was done uh, with uh, bigger instruments. You just remove the cataract and uh, put the patient lying down on sandbag for about 10, 15 days because no proper sutures were given. And uh, so I really felt uh, that there is a strong need uh, for uh, transformation. And there was not only need, but there was an opportunity to succeed. Now, of course, um, you're only one physician. So there's only so many of these surgeries that you can perform yourself. By the way, how many can you perform in a given day? Uh, you know, I'm, uh, in my days, I've done about 100 surgeries, 100 modern cataract surgeries in a day. But uh, look, I'm getting a little old now, you know? <laughs> I probably do about 70 a uh, day very comfortably. That still sounds like a lot. <laughs> but but the point is, uh, if you want to transform a system, you, you have to get other people um, on board with your vision and and, uh, and train other people. So maybe uh, this is about now, I think about 30 years ago, uh, you meet this fellow, Je Jeff Tabin. I met him a bit later. Now, I'll tell you... Uh, what uh, really happened uh, uh, much before that was, uh, uh, I, I told you about the barriers for surgery. The barriers for surgery was uh, the, uh, the need for a very simple uh, and uh, uh, acceptable, uh, appropriate surgical technique uh, that could be used as a system for this kind of uh, society, this kind of community. And then to bring down the cost of the intraocular lenses to uh, to a level where this could be used at a public health disposal, you know, and uh, then to have a system. The most important thing have was have a surgical delivery system that could be fitted as a prototype in this part of the world. So my uh, my main, uh, you know. Uh, focus and commitment from every day, every night was to think about refining the surgical technique and about developing a surgical delivery system and all about reducing the cost of the intraocular lenses. And uh, it, it took us nearly five to seven years to come to a level where we had, you know, successfully simplified the surgical technique and we had established an intraocular lens lab manufacturing in Nepal with the help of the Fred Hollows uh, Foundation, uh, which, you know, we are aware uh, we could drive down the cost of the intraocular lenses to a level that people, it was difficult for people to imagine when we established the lab. And uh, then we were able to develop a prototype of the whole surgical uh, delivery. It's the model, you know. A look is the model that uh, you know took that for, for the development of this model. It, it took me a lot of time. Well, the model. So you're working on this model, and this is in the 1990s. Is that right? 
uh, it's late 80s and early 90s. Okay. Now, uh, I know that you use rupees and maybe you don't convert always into U.S. dollars, but can you give me a sense of like how much it would cost to do um, one of these surgeries in the beginning when you started on the model? How much for the surgery and how much for the intraocular lens? And then how much did you bring it down to? The cost of the surgery at that time was uh, almost about 9,000 to 10,000 rupees. That's almost equivalent to about eight to $900. Yeah. And- uh, Which is a lot of money in Nepal. A lot of money, oh, a lot of money. This was, uh, this, 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 this price, it was impossible for us to use this at the public health level. So uh, with the cost of the intraocular lenses, simpli simplifying the surgical technique, uh, and uh, developing a model where we could do high volume, it brought down the cost of the surgery to, uh, I would say, to less than 1,000 rupees. So we were talking less than $100. Yes, much less than $100, much less, much less than $100. And uh, the cost of the intraocular lens only, uh, we brought it down from about $200, $250, it's unthinkable, unimaginable to less than $5. And that's by manufacturing them yourselves. You created your, your, your own local manufacturing center. Locally, yeah. Locally, look, you know, this, is, this produced an extremely, uh, extremely powerful chain effect in other developing countries. And I'll talk to you, you know, how we made it acceptable also by, uh, you know, to lower the cost of the uh, modern cataract surgery. And much more than that is if this was a surgery which was available to a few hundred people, now we were thinking that it could be available for a few million people now. So how, uh, how did you get the financing? to uh to develop the 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 system and the and start up the manufacturing center who helped you in the beginning uh in the beginning you know to help me provide uh, lenses from different companies to use in my model of uh, surgical technique developing surgical technique uh, i had a help from two friends in united states of america and one uh, now he's quite senior and uh, he's uh, very part-time working in uh, Berkeley, California, Dr. Richard Litwin. And uh, we started uh, sort of going through the surgery in the beginning together. And uh, he was one person. And that person uh, was, a, uh, was a professor at uh, the Harvard. Uh, and he's based uh, in, uh, uh, in Baltimore, uh, Professor Alan Robin. He's a glaucoma ex you know, expert, but uh, he was somebody who understood uh, my dreams and uh, he was uh, extremely helpful for me to provide the initial uh, uh, you know uh, intraocular lenses uh, sutures and uh, consumables that were not possible to get anywhere nearby you know and uh, he used to send residents uh, to work with me and they used to come with uh, and the duffel bags full of uh, uh, everything, you know, all the uh, Christmas presents. <laughs> so you, you had some help from a couple of folks uh, here in the U.S., uh, colleagues of yours. Um, were there skeptics at, at home or elsewhere who thought, oh, this is a nice idea, Dr. Ruit, but it won't work or it has this kind of risk? There, 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 there are a lot of people who are skeptical and uh and, uh, you know, uh, I'll talk a little bit about the intraocular lens later, but uh, uh, people were very skeptical about uh, the work that I was doing. And, uh, you know, I was actually doing intraocular cataract surgery, intraocular lens cataract surgery in the bush. And uh, so I got, uh, um, I got written critically in uh, medical journals and, uh, you know, people from the established World Health Organization 
international agency of prevention of blindness and uh, being very critical to us. And uh, because I was continuing to do this work and that brought uh, a big, very big cataract meeting here in Nepal. And uh, this actually took place in where you were staying, Luke, you know, in the Akinati Hotel. Now, wait a second. So they were skeptical. You were doing these surgeries in the bush. Were, were they worried that maybe this wasn't going to be sanitary, that people could get infected or, or yeah, bad bad quality? Many things, many things. You know, not, uh, it was too complex. It was too expensive. Uh, and uh, it is not something that and, uh, you had a age-old technique which had tested time. It was available in hand. And uh, so, you know, they were under, then, then this meeting, I'll just talk, this meeting took place in, uh, in the hotel and, uh, you know, it had brought a lot of people, the chief of National Eye Institute uh, from states, WHO, and uh, a lot of people from, you know, the Asian and uh, Europe and uh, people in all their, you know, the three-piece suits and, uh, you know, and uh, a lot of executives anyway. So Fred Hollows and I sat there, and there were presentations of a thousand, two thousand pieces of old technique done, and uh, you know, fantastic vision with the thick glasses uh, obtained and uh, claps. And uh, finally, it was my time. I presented 150 cases of uh, intraocular lens surgery done in different parts of the eye cam, and uh, you know, so when I finished, there was pin drop silence and uh, and. People uh, started push, asking questions, and you know, how can you sustain it? How, what do you do with this complication? How can uh, what is going to happen with the cost? And uh, you know what is going to happen with all the complications and all those things. You know. So anyway, we were uh, virtually uh, uh, sidelined and isolated from the mainstream, and uh, Fred Hollows and I rushed out from there, left them there. And uh, we were so frustrated that we went straight to the bar and started drinking. And that was the situation at that time. You know, we were, you came out with this uh, thing and uh, nobody, including the best of the best in the world, would uh, uh, not support you. So I knew that uh, I, I had a, you know, I had a fair bit of stair to climb before making it, you know, but I was convinced about what was happening. So you had to prove that you would get similar quality outcomes, quality of vision and uh, the low rate of complications. You needed to prove this to your peers. Exactly, exactly. So we started, we started writing few, uh, you know, papers and uh, in international journals and, uh, and things like that. And still uh, the type of the surgery that I was doing was not acceptable to most of the uh, doctors and industrialized country and uh, but we were doing it quite successfully every every uh, you know new workshop we were improving and uh, we had fi already fine-tuned everything and the results were fantastic and the system was working smooth and uh, uh, you know and uh, you know everything was fine-tuned already and that's when uh, I met uh, Jeff Tevin uh, in 1994. You know, he had uh, come to work with me uh, after finishing his uh, fellowship in Australia. Yeah. And what um, what happened then when Jeff joined up on the Himalayan Cadillac pro project? Uh, Jeff was uh, very uh, impressed with what he saw, uh, what I was doing, and, uh, you know, and uh, we, we went on for a couple of years, and uh, then uh, Jeff continued to uh, started uh, saying, "What can I do? What can I do?" You know, and I said, "We have uh, there's somebody who's very energetic and wants to do something to help us." And uh, then uh, the first thing that we said was, uh, "We decided was sat in my office and decided to form the Himalayan Cataract Project." And that is how it was formed, uh, Himalayan Cataract Project. And uh, then uh, I think, um, you know, I had I expressed to him that, uh, as you can see, now the whole system is available. We know it has brought down the cost. We know it's viable. We know it's not compromising the quality. And uh, it's consistently uh, very good quality. 
So I said, let's try to see whether we can do a randomized clinical trial. And uh, that's when uh, Jeff and I approached uh, uh, Dr. David Chang. And uh, Dr. David Chang is a very good-hearted, uh, but a very well-known uh, cataract surgery uh, in the academic uh, world in America, based in uh, San Francisco, California. And uh, he's one of the best uh, phaco emulsification surgeons and uh, was an authority on a lot of work. So we decided that, uh, you know, we will invite him uh, to do the phaco emulsification surgery and I will do the small incision cataract surgery. So we did a randomized clinical trial uh, up in the monastery in Kathmandu. Beautiful setting, you know, a very nice setting. And, uh, you know, we randomized the patients on by, uh, you know, patients picking up ping pong balls and, uh, and uh, going to this table or that table. And, uh, and a separate group of examiners examined the patients post-op and followed the patients up for one year. And the results were published in the American Surgery. And according to the results, the, the outcomes, uncorrected vision in both, you know, both techniques were very comparable. And uh, the surgical, surgical technique was swifter in the small incision cataract surgery we done in a shorter time, much less equipments and instruments. The overall overall cost would be less than uh, 20 times in uh, in the small incision cataract surgery than in the, but the results were good. So this uh, was a landmark study that let people know about uh, this uh, simple surgery. And uh, I, I have a feeling, uh, Luke, that this made this surgery acceptable. And uh, the volume of surgery actually started growing uh, in many developing countries because this was available now. You know, a surgical technique and a system and a consumables were available now. So you could, large number of people could have the surgery now. So about... This sounds like a big deal. Um, and um, that you could, uh, you got over that, that question about the outcomes. How many years did this take from the beginning until you reached that point when um, now you've got a whole bunch of believers in the ophthalmology community? Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, like, like in the beginning, in the beginning, I, you know, I tell you, I had a lot of enemies in my own country. And uh, I had to uh, cruise. Uh, and when I started giving lectures in my, when I was here, everybody was with lots of stupid questions. And, uh, and sometimes it was depressing going, going back home and uh, talking to your wife and getting drunk. And sometimes, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting, you know, how, how people harass you on, uh, on things. And then uh, you find that, you know, five, six years later, same people come back and, be, you know, try to be friends with you. This is how the <laughs> but, world, uh, this is how the world is, you know, look. That, that, that's life as an entrepreneur. It, it is. <laughs> but, okay, so, um, but now when you, you got this paper published um, and a lot of people suddenly start embracing this surgery, it, it even began being taught in U.S. and uh, industrialized country medical schools, right? So this is now, I mean, widely, widely done, but far outside Nepal. And, you know, uh, we started, Jeff and I started giving instruction courses at the American Academy of Ophthalmology uh, for almost four consecutive years. And I, I exactly remember the first year we were uh, doing uh, the instruction course, we had just about 10 people in our room. And then the second year, uh, we had about uh, 50 people in the room. And the third year, we had more than 300 in the room. And uh, then after that, you know, people started sort of, you know, our, our, our instruction courses were sold out. So it was getting, you know, it was getting popular. And, uh, you know, it was, you know, look, it's interesting. It was important to have this type of surgery in this part of the world because the, most of the cataracts that we see in this part of the world were very complex, very hard, very difficult. And you are working in suboptimal conditions. You're not working in the five-star, uh, you know, conditions. And, uh, you know, for anybody who was trained in a residency in the industrial, industrialized world, for them to come and work here is going to be difficult. 
to do the surgery with the ultrasound machine in such cases would be disaster. So you needed to have a surgical technique, which was simple enough, uh, but would do the same value of outcome. Uh, so that was the trick of, uh, you know, and the small incision cataract surgery was uh, really the answer to this, to remove the cataract through a small, you know, wound with an external and internal opening at two different planes. So the wound is self-sealing uh, and uh, remove the nucleus and put in an intraocular lens and uh, without sutures, you know. The, so, uh, and to fit this in the prototype of the surgical delivery system was, uh, was important. Uh, because the uh, the surgical, when you talk about cataract surgery in an office, it becomes surgery, it becomes a technique, it becomes a small system. But when you talk about taking the surgery to a community, it becomes a delivery system. And you have to look at many other things, you know. So that's how this became a, a real, like a prototype of a surgical delivery system, which could be used to do large volumes of surgery very successfully. So you're talking about bringing it out into the field. So when I was in Kathmandu recently, I toured your Tilganga Institute and I saw um, through a, a, a large screen, uh, a surgeon performing one of these surgeries um, in a, you know, a, a well-equipped surgical suite and people come in there. But you're talking about bringing it now out into the rural areas. This is, this is your next step. Yeah, no, we have, you know, no, look, I have been doing that for the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. I've been doing it, taking to the rural areas and refining. And now, uh, you know, uh, the system of surgical delivery system in Nepal has become very popular. And uh, everybody in our, you know, in other parts of the world wants to come and learn and take it back to their country. Can you, for po folks who have not had the, the privilege to tour the Tilganga Institute, can you say a little bit about, I mean, how many people you're able to treat now? Like now that you're a, a large a pretty large scale operation. How many surgeries can you perform? How many people can you help? How far has this extended around the world? Yes, um, uh, look, you know, Tilganga uh, with uh, wonderful partners like Himalayan Cataract Project and the Fred Hollows Foundation. We have, like, for example, the institution in a day sees about little more than 100 patients just in Kathmandu only. And uh, in the, uh, the op surgical list uh, includes about every day, about 100 surgeries. And uh, there are uh, 30 to 35 eye doctors examining patients simultaneously. And uh, we have uh, four uh, partner hospitals uh, outside Kapandu, which are delivering similarly. And uh, the four partner hospitals are seeing every every day, each of them probably would be seeing 500 cases. So 2,000 cases, you know, uh, every day and uh, doing surgeries uh, on a scale of about 40 to 50 a day, all these four surgeries. And on top of that, we'll be doing a lot of uh, outreach surgical procedures. And uh, right, right now, there's a team working in uh, in the western part of Nepal in Gorkha, doing about 250 cases. And uh, then uh, a week later, I'm going up to uh, the Annapurna base camp area, doing some surgery there. So this goes on, you know, the outreach and everything goes on. And then we have, now we have a lot of people coming from outside for training. We have people coming from United States of America. We have two uh, right now uh, learning the small incision cataract surgery. And we have people coming from Indonesia, from Ethiopia, from Ghana, Tanzania, from, uh, you know, Cambodia, from Myanmar, from so many other countries. Yeah. And are you thinking that a lot of these trainees can come learn the technique in Nepal and then go back to their home country and, and do uh, and replicate something like what, what you've been able to do? Yes, uh, Luke, that's the, that's the most important essence of uh, this, uh, this next step that we are putting so much effort on, uh, training and replicating the model in uh, other parts so that more and people, more and more people, you know, you know, as quickly as possible will come within the uh, surgical you know, target. What would you say your uh, 
long-term goal is for the next, I don't know, 10 or 20 years? You, you alluded at the beginning that, you know, you're getting a little older now. <laughs> Look, uh, you were saying in the beginning that uh, we have a fantastic team. And uh, we have a team of, um, you know, very well-trained doctors and uh, who are wonderful surgeons, much better surgeons than me now. And uh, then uh, we have a group of ophthalmic technicians, ophthalmic assistants, who supports uh, really an excellent brand of support staff, which becomes part of the surgical delivery system, you know. And uh, now what uh, one of the one of the goals that I have is, uh, you know, we have worked on developing the intraocular lens manufacturer in a more philanthropic model. And our focus has been how best we can bring down the cost of the intraocular lens. And we have been able to do that. Uh, but now uh, I want to get in, into a more uh, commercial and corporate uh, level so that uh, we can make uh, some cost recovery out of it to be used in the community. And uh, to do that, uh, it needs to be revamped and uh, the whole uh, taken to a different platform where we can, uh, we, we, we believe our aim is to see whether we can manufacture about uh, 1.5 million piece units per year vis-a-vis -vis what we are manufacturing now 0.3 million per year and to get into international competitions in the market. And, uh, uh, you know, and then hold, build a whole new uh, uh, manufacturing unit. And uh, the manufacturing unit that we have in Pilganga is getting smaller. And also we need more space for our patients too. So once we move out of that, it can be used for uh, patients as uh, expansion. And uh, the intraocular lens manufacturing uh, you know, uh, process into this level will encompass uh, infrastructure and more equipments, uh, but the technical know-how and uh, expertise and uh, is already there, you know. So that's already there. It just uh, we needed some resources, uh, financial resources to get into that. So that's one uh, aim that I have. The second one uh, that uh, I have is to see how best we can how sooner we can take this model of cataract surgical delivery in other parts of the world by finding people, uh, philanthropists who can fund uh, the surgical subsidy for us to do this work in, let's say in Ethiopia, in Tanzania, Ghana, in, uh, you know, in uh, sub-Saharan area and in Laos, Myanmar, Cambodia, uh, in uh, Indonesia, in uh, Mongolia, Kazakhstan, many of these parts where we are working, we're very closely working with them. And, uh, you know, I've, recently I've been able to find a partner in a philanthropist who wants to put in some funds uh, for, for the subsidy of the cataract. Uh, this is a, um, you know, a philanthropist from uh, UK, Mr. Tej Kohli. Uh, he's been helping, he's, he's committed to help us with substantial funding in Nepal and outside Nepal to do this. So the second is to see how best we, I can take this model to other parts of the world. And uh, then, uh, uh, you know, uh, look, uh, I, I really want to, uh, my, my concept is how best we can actually convert this into a university. And uh, yeah, once uh, I'm able to do that, the you know the training programs, uh, most of the training programs that we are conducted will be really institutionalized, and uh, that's that's the time uh, you know for me to say goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really fascinating and inspiring to see that this how this vision has grown um from you know you you can train a new generation of surgeons on this technique and then uh do this specialized manufacturing of the key component the intraocular lens there in nepal turn that into an export business that provides jobs uh locally 
um, and and uh, helps advance health uh, for people in all these developing countries. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it, it enables so much uh, more human flourishing of the people in Nepal. Once you get this surgery, you can, you know, contribute more to your to your family and your community. Um, it's really um, quite a quite an inspiring story. I, I've got to say, it's it's it's, it's great, and uh, I I think uh, you know a lot of people say that um, uh, uh, I'm being a bit biased, but uh, this is a beautiful branch of uh, medicine where you can uh, do so much, uh, and uh, we can see significantly, uh, you know, vividly, physically. Uh, your your values of what you have done very quickly, you know. Well, I I wish you well, and I I can uh, having toured the facility, uh, I can begin to see some of the potential of what you're talking about. Um, I saw so much enthusiasm among the people um, who work at the Tilganga Institute there in Kathmandu. Um, so, congratulations, Dr. Sandok Ruiz. Thank you so much for joining me on the long run. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.